Hi, welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Hi, and welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast. I'm JP McMahon. Today, we're interviewing Siobhan Igarvi, who is the person behind St. Tola Cheese, that famous uh, Irish farmhouse cheese. We'll be talking to Siobhan about how she got into making the cheese, but also a little bit about the history of Irish cheese and I suppose how and where cheese is going in this country. Today I'm here with Siobhan Nigaravi. I said that correctly. Uh, and we are going to talk about cheese today. And um, so you're very welcome, Siobhan. Thanks very much for inviting me, JP. And as many of you will know, and for some of you who don't, Siobhan is a person behind St. Tola, or one of the many people who produce this wonderful uh, goat's cheese. So we're going to have a chat about cheese, St. Tola, and I suppose Ireland's place in the cheese world. So just to start, Siobhan, do you want to tell me how you got into cheese initially? Because I, I do remember you were a primary school teacher. That's correct. From our, our sojourn to, to Canada, uh, where we learned so much. How did you get into the cheese world? Yeah, um, well, I came into the cheese world in a very circuitous route in that I was a child of the 70s, JP. So in our time, it was all industrial cheese. I was reared on Laughing Cow. Um, When those easy single slices came in, they were the best thing since the slice pen. And um, so that was my knowledge of cheese and big chunks of process that was mine as mine as well and i'm more <laughs> of a child more a child of the 80s born in 78 but definitely i that the height of cheese in our house was was easy singles, singles. and probably sandwich maker and they those little triangle laughing yeah, cows yeah. and the, but and, and that's calvita. and calvita but that's i mean and i know this from writing the book but you, we, we kind of forget that there was a great history of cheese making i mean historically but i do think that in the, it, things started to change around that time, but they probably just took a while for, yes. for everyone to know. Yeah, yeah. As you say, historically, we had a great culture, you know, of cheese making, but at that time, we weren't aware of it. Where I first became aware of other types of cheeses and cheese making was we were bought, brought by my parents on a camping holiday to France. And my uncle was with us and he had worked for the attaché. So he was sitting down at the campfire eating all these wonderful cheeses, including blue cheese that I saw for the first time and that we saw to my horror he was eating it and we said that's mouldy Uncle Michal he said yeah it's mould good mould we never knew what good mould was we still, I don't know if we've still got used to got used to good mould in the kitchen uh, but <laughs> hopefully we're, get, we're, we're getting there with good mould and good food good mould good cheese and, and mushrooms and you know and I, I do I think many for many of the cheese makers that I know of I think particularly who came out of the 70s and 80s I think it was that inspiration of, of France and Spain and Italy very much so very much so and then from there on I suppose the revival in the very early 80s with um, Veronica Steele of Malines Cheese, first of all, who moved down from um, Dublin with her young family who wanted to set up, you know, an income in, in, in Beira Peninsula. So she was the person who revived, you know, um, the art of cheese making, which had gone back for, you know, generations um, pre-industrial, you know, pre-industrial times here in Ireland. Um, with the monks who actually yes. brought cheese making to France, to France and to Spain. It's got that was actually there. something really interesting, actually full circle. And it's something that you, it's difficult to convince a French person oh. that the process <laughs> began possibly in Irish monasteries because they were, I suppose, self-sufficient with milk, producing different types of cheese and all of the different, the different, uh, and you will know better than I, because you're an Irish speaker, but all the different names for milk and curd and oh, cheese, yeah, and all of those. Him, but yeah. Yes, I mean, there were so many 
there were so many, it, it wasn't just milk. There was like 10 different names for Banya, Banya Ur, Banya Crew, Banya, different times of the year. The milk changes yes. throughout the year, depending on the lactation of, of the animal who's supplying the milk. And how, how did you, from that point, like when did you, like as a teacher, what, what made you decide? Well, I suppose one thing I hadn't said, even though I was a child of the 80s with Calvita, my parents used to bring us down to our neighbour's farm, Megan Derry Gordon, who were the original makers of St. Ola cheese. Okay. They had moved from Wexford in a recession in the early 80s. They had been horse breeders, came down to Clare. We're thinking about horse breeding, but the bank manager left when he saw the quality of the land in West Clare. So Meg, who had gone to finishing school in France, had learned to make cheese. So she started making cheese. And my parents used to bring us down. Two of my younger sisters had very bad asthma when they were babies. And at that time, we used to buy frozen goat's milk off them. And they were beginning to make little fresh croton at the time. So that's when we started look, looking at the cheese. We didn't dare taste it. <laughs> and it was a bit like, you know, because the, the kids, that Roisin and Sinead, had to drink um, the milk. It was anything you were forced to do, well, obviously wasn't good. You know, it's like the time in, 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 in when we used to eat fish, it was forced, to, it was forced upon us for Lent. You I know? still apply the same philosophy with my children. As long as I don't force them, they might eat it. Jesus. But if I force them, yes. I, I've already yeah, lost. Yeah. So we knew St. Tola and goat's cheese, but it wasn't something... That we ate because they actually had very. And what what, what what year was what year was that or what? That would have been like early eighties or mid eighties. That would have been early eighties. Okay. Eighty two, eighty three. And so they were time. producing Tola then. Yes. They were. And were they were they inspired by by Veronica or was it a separate was it a separate it was, was well they knew of like Veronica. lots of different movements. Different mo- they had to get an income to be able to live on the farm. Meg, uh, they were quite creative and alternative. Meg had thought about they had heard about Melines had started. And Meg had, when she'd spent her time being educated up in France, she'd learned to make cheese and she went back full time then for a year to make it. So there was kind of a movement. You know, the and is, does Cashel Blue come from the, uh, a similar time? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so, so Veronica came first, made her cheese and she was brought then by UCC, brought her in to run a course. Okay. Um, and that's then when the others, that's when Goubine, ah, Coulee, okay. Cashel Blue, they all heard, well, the West Cork crowd in particular, but the others, that's when they heard about it because it was, it was a small, and what happened was Horgan's Delicatessen were the first customer at the time, and he started talking. They kind of had a customer, uh, what you call it, got the first customer, um, Melines, but Veronica then ran, ran a course in conjunction with UCC. These people that we now know, Goubine, Doris, mm. Coulet, and the Grubs, they then started experimenting you know, have, having listened to Veronica, attended the course, and that's when, that's when the revival really came was in uh, the mid eighties. Very good. So they all started off at the same time and, together. And at that stage, I mean, when when did you? Um... Well, when I came, I came up here teaching to Galway. As you said, I was a teacher, so I was in Galway teaching from eighty eight to ninety two. I was four years teaching in Galway, and at that time, Kevin and Seamus Sheridan opened up their first what I call a glass shop in the Air Square shopping centre. Okay. And I thought that was just a bee. I, I was walking and I said, my God, what's this? Because it was just all the different cheeses. I hadn't seen such an array of cheeses since I had been in France, however many years before, yeah. seven years beforehand. So I used to go in, you know, tasting something different, trying something different. Um, always had a good relationship with Megan Derrick just because they were, um, you know, we, we still called them and I was getting a little bit of cheese off them for our own consumption and that. And when I was in Galway, I had decided, I suppose I became aware 
of the importance, I started to become more aware of the importance of the land and food and different types of food. We would always have had a very um, strong sense of place and culture from our parents. Um, you know, the importance of who we were and where we came from. We were always very proud to say we were from a small village outside Ina that nobody really knew yeah. of. But unless we told people about it, how would they find out about it? So we always had a sense of, of place and pride. And it's, when I was up in Galway, whereas I enjoyed um, teaching and of course loved Galway, but I was kind of being, I was thinking about, I'm one of six um, children and none of us were doing anything with the farm. My parents were full-time teachers themselves and they'd always lease the land to what we would call real farmers, our neighbours next door who were milking cows. Uh, we would always have, now we'd have had a cow ourselves that we milked only for fun for ourselves to have milk. You know, we'd fight over the cream for the cornflakes in the morning. We'd make a bit of, small bit of butter mm. in a churn, but only for ourselves, nothing. Mum and Dad wouldn't really have come from a food culture, you know. Um, well, they came from the food culture that was there of their time, I shouldn't say. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Um, they wouldn't have come from the same background as the likes of Veronica and Megan Derrick, who would, you know, they hadn't travelled as much, I suppose, you know. Mm. So I saw then about the whole cheese. I knew Megan Derrick. I knew they were very, very seasonal business and they were quite eccentric. It would march. They had 70 goats in total. They were producing very little milk for the six months, had a number of customers. I was in Galway and I knew I wanted to do something with the farm and I was trying to decide what, did I, what, what could be done with it because I knew dairy farming wasn't going to be sustainable. The land wasn't good enough in that. And I was looking for something alternative to yeah. do with it. So I went... Um, Actually, I went back to full-time study here in UCG. It was more in business and marketing, but my interest was in food and the land. And fortunately for me, from talking to Megan Derrick, they were retiring because Derrick had very bad arthritis and they hadn't, um, they had no two-legged kids themselves, but they were, the goats were their family and they were looking to sell the business or keep it going because to them, they had built it up over a 10-year period. And I was always talking to them, you know, so I knew this and I started putting my thinking cap on. I said, well, it's just two miles down the road from us. It's the same land. Part of my work experience when I went back to college was um, promoting uh, regional food products. It was my first awareness of regional food products. This was like in 93. Mm. Uh, the venison co-op had been set up uh, with, um, in Limerick uh, where they were promoting, you know, smoked venison, different cuts of venison that most people wouldn't have known about. I was at a work placement below with Shannon Development where we were promoting regional food products of a re region where, where I became first aware of regional products. That's really, like, but even though no. you're saying it's quite ahead of its time. Like yeah, considering it was. it was very much into, I mean, I, when did I come to Galway in 99? It was yeah. very much in the, the late noughties that the whole local food movement, so you're talking but, like nearly 20 years. Beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, it was very... It was very good thinking of, of Shannon development. You know, we, it was called, I, I started working with kind of an umbrella called the Shannon Basket of Fine Foods. So it was based around the Shannon River. Yeah, yeah. So we had Clare, Limerick, Tipperary and North Curry. So it was everything from shellfish and oysters to venison, you know, yeah. pots of venison, smoked venison, smoked salmon, brigettes. And I know they're doing stuff. That I just take, they're actually, are they doing stuff on the estuary now where they're trying to look at 
developing, I, I don't know in what capacity, but it really just reminds me of what I was researching recently, yeah. that there is, it is such a fertile place. And that when one thinks of Ireland and you think of Dublin, you think of Galway or Connemara, yeah. but it's rare when someone says, oh, the Shannon so, Estuary. Yes. And because I, I think in the Middle Ages, because of that whole sea land dynamic, yes, that yeah. it was um, a place where, and you could actually travel nearly all the way up to the north by boat. That's it, yeah, yeah. I think people are beginning to realise the importance of the sea. Of the riverway, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. As well, that's not all about cars and motorways. Yeah, 100%. You know? um, so, firstly, for me, Meg and Derek were retiring. They were looking to sell the business or the trade name, but really for it to be kept alive. Yes. Um, John, my partner in life and in crime, he had he had set up his own business in, in Shellfish Nicers himself. So, I suppose he encouraged me. I saw an opportunity yeah. to do something different with the land that was there. The brand was there. I knew from working with him, work experience, that could easily be grown and developed. And what year was that? Like 1994, is it? Or? Uh, that was in, what we see now, we go back to, I actually took over fishing for them in 99. I worked with them full time in 1998. Okay. I was negotiating with them, you could say, in 97. Yeah. So um, just trying to figure, I was learning from them, you know, and trying to figure out, it was, it was so funny because anytime we'd go down to Megan Derry to try and find out, you know, they never had a formal business plan written at hand to me. We'd say, well, how many goats you have and what was the yield of milk? And I still don't think I have a formal business plan, but at least Drigging, <laughs> Drigging <laughs> takes care of those things for, for me. I just open things. Help, but yeah. No, you have, you have, you need a good balance. And as we can see, it changes so quickly. You could have the best business plan in the world and something yeah. can come. And it's funny you say 99, because I think I came out to Galway in 99, because the first time I encountered St. Tola was when I was working in, uh, as a pizza chef in Fat Freddy's and, yeah. Um, Sheridan's had their little shop on uh, Kerwin's Lane then. Yes, yeah. And that was the first time I uh, had your goat's cheese. And um, yeah, like I, again, it's 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 an I didn't I hadn't I didn't realize at all then. I was supposed to. The, the importance of I wasn't even thinking about food provenance yes. I was just thinking yeah. about about yeah. food yeah. so it's, yeah. it, it is so, yeah so after working like with Shan Development with that um, you know promoting you know regional food products then myself and another lady who was kind of spearheading it we kind of set up our own business in uh, supplying hotels and restaurants with uh, regional food products but I could see within a year the focus was that it was very hard logistically to write to um, suppliers, producers can be quite erratic in their, sub in yes. their supplies, I'm sure you're well aware of. Mm. So we ended up developing mostly a range of farmhouse cheeses. And I then moved outside the Shannon region from sourcing. And should there was such a vast array there, you know, so I was doing that for a year or two, then with Megan Derrick, then I took over then, and then I went full time into St. Ola. Well, I've always still worked with other, you know, farmhouse cheese makers as well, because it's- Yeah, because you're quite involved in cost then, aren't you? And, yeah, yeah, I'm and back. The, and the international perception. Yes, yes. And, yeah, yeah. Because uh, that's for me, that's really important because it's not only how, I suppose, we see cheese ourselves and the, the length of time it's taken to, to get Irish people to appreciate farmhouse cheese. I think that unfortunately, the people that land into Ireland, whether it's tourists or just visitors, I mean, they see, I think sometimes they see the appreciation long before we see it. Yes. Because they might be French people coming over and going, God, there's great cheese here. Mm. Whereas we still, I still think we've a bit of a way to go. But I do think yeah. like, like how how for you how have things changed i mean because now i mean as you said like you're in, you're in duns now i mean we can get your cheese from larousse or from like yeah. so from from the from when you started and and saying you were you were either delivering by yourself or just into sheridan's yes. to now yeah. i mean there there must be uh, a much greater appreciation 
for cheese now. Very much so. I mean, it has changed dramatically. I mean, you, you said the introduction that I'm, 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 I'm one of a number of people who produce Santola. We are only a, t- we are only a team of eight, oh. including the farmers. In case people well, think there's different branches of. No, we're, well, we're only a team of eight, but sometimes people think that there's a team of like fifty. Oh, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, um. So how it, I mean, it evolved in that, when I took over from Megan Derrick, basically it was direct into uh, into the few restaurants and hotels that appreciated those type of cheese at the uh, And what, 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 can you remember, what restaurants were you selling into? Like, um, was it up, just in the West or was it in? No, in, no, up in Dublin, um, Vim Kong here. Yeah. J- Jerry oh, Gatt, Jerry Gatt, yeah. Um, Ashford Castle, Dromoland, um, up in Chapter One. When did Chapter One start? They were there. I should have bought my ninety six, maybe ninety seven, yeah. possibly. I, yeah, I, yeah. Right, if they... um, then there was the little cheese shop up there. She, a farmer owner of the Falls Hotel. There was a cheese shop there at the time. Um, Sheridan's obviously were starting. One of one of the first customers that any of the farmhouse cheese Irish farmhouse cheese make was Ninjar Dairy. They came on very quickly on. The, oh yes, there was a lot more being actually exported to the UK. Yeah, than there was actually being kept kept. It is in. that still the case? I mean, because yeah. I know Neil's, are they still sell a massive amount of Irish cheese over in London. Not as much as before. Okay, because in the eighties, with the revival of farmhouse cheese in Ireland, which the likes of Gubin and 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 Milines and Cash Blue and all those. They were well ahead of the time, whereas now a lot of countries, UK has such a broad range of good quality farmhouse cheese makers. Yeah. The same with America, a lot of countries now. So there's actually less being exported now. Okay. And, well, less varieties, but those who still export, you know, like the Cashew Blue, Carrigaline, that they're doing bigger volumes. And the varieties. The, you said it was at the beginning, it must have been difficult in terms of distributing you because you were literally just delivering cheese to the various different restaurants yeah. yourself. Yeah. Well, well, Horgan's Delicatessen, to be fair, yes. they were kind of the one distributor that was there. Okay. Yeah. So they were doing a bit into individual shops and restaurants. But I remember driving up to, oh, there, the Four Seasons up in Dublin. But we thought nothing because um, they had an order and something went wrong or somebody didn't deliver. So I came in just when I was based in Nermick and had to drive back up again with my three logs. And of course, I hadn't a business head of me at that stage. I, sure it was a day out for me. Yes. And in to see the kitchen, talk to the chef and all that. But of course, there was no money being made in it. But it had the long term. I was prepared to give the service, you know what I mean, you know? But um, so the um, so the hotels and restaurants. So then we had the um, we had a little bit with Neil Yard. But when I used to do tastings, first of all, with Megan Derrick, we were going in to the shops that were there at the time. It was the very fresh cheese. Meg's, I'll never forget Meg's saying to me the first time I was doing a cheese thing. Superquin was there at the time. Yes. They were beginning at the time and they had very good stores. They yeah. had very good cheese counters. They were doing what Sheridan's are doing now. Yeah. They had very well informed, you know, cheesemongers and very dedicated cheese counters. Meg used to say to me when I was doing the first tasting, she said, don't tell anybody it's goat's cheese. Say it's from Claire and that it's a fresh cheese. And then when you've got them to taste, then tell them what it is. Okay. Because if you tell them beforehand, nine, at least 90% will walk away. So I remember having, we would have our fresh log. I'd say, hello, I'm Siobhan. I'm here tasting Saintola. It's a fresh cheese from County Clare. And only then after they would take, because people had this perception, some still do, but a very small. Of goat's cheese. Of goat's cheese. This that it's too, block. yeah, that it's like, when it's, say it's too goaty or. It's strong, that it's salty and it's not nice. And I don't know if that's, if it's just people 
if, if people have changed or that we've got more used to it because people would say the same thing to us sometimes when we have lamb yes. or if we get say Connemara lamb mm. people say I think it's too lamby yeah. and yet but when they taste it they go oh no that's actually yeah. that they go yeah. that doesn't remind me of the lamb I had when I was a child yeah. and so I don't know if we've changed or the lamb has yeah, changed yeah. but it's just or we've just our palates have developed well, our palates have developed for sure, but I think it's we would have a, we would have had a lot of preconceived notions of negativity about certain food products. Yeah. And say with goats in Ireland, we weren't big. Like when I was young, I wouldn't. I've seen some goats, but we had the we just had the smell of yeah, the white yeah, yeah, yeah. And be like the mountain lamb. And it's the same. It 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 does the same. Does it does it apply to sheep as well or no? I mean, in that it does. It does. Yeah. yeah. People would say. Like goat and sheep's cheese were very new twenty years ago. Too. Yeah, but but they knew what sheep and goat were because we especially sheep we had plenty of them in the country. But you just thought of you know when they get in the Irish climate and the wet they're quite you know smelly. So that's yeah. what people people were associating the product then with the animal. <laughs> but I, I I know I know exactly what you mean because when we were it reminds me of when we when we were in we when we were in Mexico doing a little snack and it was. Um, it, we, it was like a black pudding thing, yes. but we made it with fresh duck's blood. It was yeah. like a, but if we said um, a duck blood crisp, then no one would eat it. But if we said black pudding, yeah. everyone, oh my God, that's lovely, it's Irish. <laughs> and we actually did it as a little experiment because it was like 50 guests that we were wandering around with the little canopies. Yes. And everyone we said blood to, would, no, you said your yeah, grand. Yeah. And everyone black pudding said, oh my God, that's no, lovely, it's Irish. They knew it, you see. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and so I, I do. But the goat's cheese, so when I was doing it 20 years ago, it was only afterwards I had said, I would say it, it was actually, that's the goat's cheese. And the majority of people would say, oh my, they'd say straight up, well, if you told me that beforehand, I wouldn't have tasted it. I now know, you know. And was I, this in the likes of Super Queen or like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in Super Queen, in shops, you know, and but, but shops that were known for their yeah. cheese, but even so. Now, there was always the one or two percent who would have tasted said they liked it and as soon as I said it was goat's cheese then he spat it back out at me yeah 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 but yeah. I mean since then dramatically rarely am I tasting fresh goat's cheese now it's mature you something stronger flavour you know what I mean we've yeah. come so far in those 20 years but I always found yours quite distinctive and I even remember mm -hmm. from the time in in um, in Fat Freddy's, and this was this was more of a like a flavor choice. Yeah. It was less. Uh, it, it was less because in my I, mind then I wasn't thinking I'm going to buy this because it's Irish. Yeah. But I was thinking because I always preferred yours because the rind was smaller. Yeah, and I yeah. and the, the French cheeses always had a gigantic rind. Yeah, yeah, and I right. felt when, when when you made a pizza, yeah. you ended up with just rind. rind. And yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and I yeah. just felt that was that a particular choice or is that is how does that happen? Well you see a lot of people who knew goat's cheese that they had got from they were travelling or in Ireland, the French goat's cheese was the penicillin candom rind. Yeah. Which was the false artificial rind, which in a lot of cases was thick. It's very thick, yeah. Very thick. And as you say, there was a lot of waste. And if you if you did eat it, there was strong flavour. Also, with a lot of the imported cheese and still is, there's a lot more salt used in the cheese. Just to make it, to, to preserve, preserve it, yeah. Preserve it. And that then changed. And then the way that we make the cheese, we're still, um, for our raw milk cheeses, we're still hand scooping. Okay. So basically the texture is more like an ice cream texture. 
than if you're more processed cheese where you're squeezing it through a tube. It's more spreadable almost. Yeah, it's paste, just like toothpaste. So it's yeah, toothpaste yeah. texture as a But your rind is a very delicate rind. It's a natural geotrichum. Okay. And this was one of the things that, this was one of the key things when I was learning the recipe of how to make it from Megan Derrick, because nothing was out of a book. It was all hand work and experience with Megan Derrick. So he used to call the rind Geronimus, what he'd call mm. it. It's the natural, it's the true sign of an artisan cheese because you can't scientifically replicate it. You can't get a machine to do it for you. Yeah. What I mean? So a robot can't replace the, Brian to, that, yeah. to make the cheese for me. It's the geotrichum. It is very delicate. It's very much about humidity and temperature control. And developing and is it. that something that's present in the milk, or is that something you've to you've it's, to add? Oh, it's it, no, we don't add it. It's in the atmosphere. It's in the atmosphere. It's yeah. In the atmosphere, you can. There are ways of adding it to the milk, but you want the same development. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can add to the milk if necessary. I remember Killian made a few cheeses up in that little press, and we got <laughs> we we had some weird little. Uh, no, there was some, it was all we had good molds and interesting, but it was just a little experiment yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's yeah. def it's such a um, a localized thing, and even when you think of. I mean, romantically, you think of the caves of Spain yes. and the caves of France, yeah, but yeah, yeah, we yeah. do have the same thing. And yeah. it's unfortunate, I think, that we don't uh, have that association in our minds. Yeah, well, you see, people have to be educated a lot more about mm. wine development because people are still squeamish if they see any kind of a mold. Yeah. They were good. It was a bit like the first time I saw Cash Blue, uh, not Cash Blue, but a blue cheese over in France. I was horrified. I was like, mold, but, but it's, we still have to. I mean, a lot of our, a certain number of our customers still uh, wouldn't appreciate, they think there's something wrong with the rind. Even a customer rang me recently, well, there was somebody new working in the shop, and they said, we think this has gone off. It was a perfect geotrichum rind that people would pay a fortune. Yeah, yeah. She just thought there was something wrong with it. And if it starts appearing, and that, the more natural a cheese is, you will have molds in the soft. I cheese. remember once in in Cava, when we, for a while we, we, we bought um, cheese in directly from, from Spain. Yes. And... Um, I remember getting Cabrales yeah, for the yeah. first time and actually not even knowing was it gone off <laughs> and then your mom would say the more it goes off the better it that gets is, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. it and it was really very powerful, powerful. I mean yeah. like it would almost uh, wipe out your mouth and in terms of yeah. the last thing you eat you would not want to eat it first yes because you wouldn't be able to taste it's anything and yeah. and and the spanish chef that was working with us said they would just eat it with a spoon and he yeah, said yeah, they would yeah, just yeah, literally yeah, yeah, yeah like we eat ice cream yeah, yeah and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but i like it's again it's maybe it's a palate but now again it's, it's interesting how you get used to flavors and then people move on to the next one as you said people are asking for something stronger it's now it's all about education it's all about it and then tasting the more you taste like anything else, the more you experience, the more you get comfortable, the more you're... I really believe for the majority of people, the more your your, your, your sense of taste develops. Mm. Because if you're not tasting and introduce, if you're not challenging, yeah. <laughs> challenging yourself, well, then you won't appreciate the flavors. And it's one of the things, I suppose, that I've done over the years in St. Ola is I have compromised in from the business side of it, from scaling up yes. for the sake of educating people and staying true to what I learned from Megan Derrick to the artisan nature of the cheese by not introducing the extra salt to give me longer shelf life mm. and not introducing the artificial rind sticking with the geotrichum rind that will have the molds and educating my customer who's selling it to the consumer and, educa and educating the consumer about it because yeah. it's what it's what my passion is in that's why I'm still at St. Ola I'm not building it up to sell it on, make more money. That's it. And it's, it's a terrible, it's terrible, because I'm sure we've talked about this before, it's a, a compromise is a terrible word because like, because mm. what I mean is 
is that, and it's one of the reasons why the French probably won't define artisan because many of their artisanal products now are, are, are global products. Yes. And, and that is a difficulty when you talk about an artisan product, whether it's still small, but one has to grow. And I, and I think that if you can maintain the same values that you yes. have, while you scale up. Yes, and I, yes. I think it's ironic because now when I talk to other chefs about St. Tola, yeah. now it is, it's so well known, yeah. sometimes it's too well known. Exactly. And then it's almost like they're looking for the next, the next, the next thing. New thing. They're looking for the, the more obscure goat's Dude. cheese. Yes, yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think, yeah. but that's, I think that's actually a very good thing. Cause now if we put it on, people like very much recognize it. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. I think it's also wonderful that we have other, um, uh, goats producers no, coming on yeah, yeah but yeah. like even um, Larry from the Galway Goat, goat Farm, farm. Yeah, and I yeah. think it's really nice that people get a sense of that goat's cheese isn't just one thing yes. or there isn't just because I, I, I'm always surprised one producer in Ireland because yeah. I'm always surprised that people think and they go oh no I just thought they just arrived at the supermarket from somewhere <laughs> and it's not like a whole load of people yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. they all have different purposes and different tastes and like so so many um uh, so many so many so many different things but i just want to uh, uh, talk go back to and talk about a, a little bit about about like your work with caution and and the inter yeah. and internationally because again like we met on a benchmarking trip in 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 canada and for me that was what two was that two eight years ago yeah now, 211 yeah. and that was when the festival first started but it yeah. was the beginnings for me of the kind of greater food tourism and greater gastro tourism and i know that you you did have a an open farm before covid yeah with yeah, people who people yeah. coming in and so for me like internationally and with like caution going to slow food yes. and all that i mean how has that kind of that, impacted uh all very beneficial for where i have how saint ola has evolved and where i brought it because we were very lucky that kosh was set up it was the irish farmer she when was that set, set up, up again that was set up uh that was set up in 84 okay by the initial people who started they really set up first of all as a social gathering oh, very good. for them all they go from one you know from yeah. one farm to the other but it was very forward thinking but the likes of you know veronica steel uh, Gina Ferguson, Louis Grubb and Jane, they, they were very, very forward. And I remember, I, I don't know if it was yourself or Doreen were telling me that it was actually the American cheese movement came over to Ireland and was inspired to go back and produce farmhouse cheese Irish in the States. Farmhouse Cheese Kosh has inspired the Special Cheese Makers Association, the, the American cheese, because they were ahead of their time and they were working together as a group. So they were the leaders yes. in, and, and inspired, as you say. And, I, and I don't think enough people recognize that. No more than going back 1500 years ago yeah, to yeah. The, the the monasteries. But even, even now, when you think of American slow food and you think of American yes. cheeses, people assume that because of like post-World War II, America influences everything, yes, that, it, yeah. that it's actually the other, the other yeah. way around. Well, you see, the, um, the organization has and, and still is very understated. It was never a business, it was always yeah. voluntary. I'm, I'm back on the committee again for my sins again, for about round three, because it's all a voluntary organization. Yeah. Whether that's been a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, because some new cheesemakers are joining think we're kind of a marketing group and we get sales, but it's not. To us, it's always about quality and sharing ideas yes. and keeping the name out there and working together and you know it's about educating one another and keeping not keeping the name out there but working for ourselves it wasn't a sales thing you know but Kosh has always been very influential has been has opened up so many doors um you know just purely from an education and learning ourselves you know 
And from a networking point of view, from that, then Slow Food came, which has been great internationally because we can all learn so much from one another. Yeah. What I've learned over the years, as you say, that trip we went to Canada, it was only an eye-opener for me, what was possible from a food tourism point of view. And as I said earlier, I didn't want to become bigger. I was being encouraged by certain state agencies to move into the town of Venice, buy in my milk, grow, 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 yeah. bigger and bigger and supermarkets and export, export and all that. But that's not where my heart was. That's not why I gave up my paid and pinchable job. To go. It was all about the farm and the land for me. So if I, if it wasn't on my farm and using my land, because farming, farming aspect of my business is still the least profitable side of my business because mm. there are so many variables because when it comes to mother nature, you never know what's going to be at you next. You know? yeah. But if I wasn't do, if I wasn't using the milk on my farm and operating on my farm, I wouldn't have the same passion or, you know. No, and I think it's the same. Much, it's probably know? the same for us in the sense that, I mean, you do have always like options along the way to grow. But I think at some point you have to, you, you have to try and grow internally as yes. opposed to expanding yes. constantly. And I yes. think there's plenty you can do to grow internally yes. Yes. without, again, as you yeah. said, whether it's going to buy your own, buying or using someone else's milk or producing the cheese and then bringing it That's back right. into the country. There's all, all, yeah. all the yeah. different, the different things that, that, um, yeah. so, uh, so with the food tourism aspect, I saw as an aspect of, um, um, bringing extra income to the farm by having, you know, tours coming to the farm. Also, I suppose my teaching background and coming from a family teachers, there was the whole education element of it and interacting with people. I was fortunate that the Boron Eco Tourism Network was setting up at that time too, which has been a fabulous um, organization and network from a sustainable tourism point of view for the area, North Clare, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, tourists were coming onto our farm by accident because we had signs up on the main road for delivery vans and delivery trucks. But people, you know, tourists coming by because we're between Bunmati and the Cliffs of Mars, mm. we're on the main road there. They were thinking uh, we were one of these kind of um, farms, you know, tour farms yeah. that were there at the time. So tourists were coming um, um, just ad hoc to the farm. Uh, and I was saying, as my team would moan when we'd sit down for break, next thing somebody would come on the farm. And I said, we need to harness this. Yeah. You know, there's possibilities here. So food tourism has become key from a sustainable point of view. For, for because I still remember, we, I think we visited some, we were on a cheese farm and they had it all laying out I can't, in yes. Canada. Yeah, and yeah, I just yeah. still remember that as, as a great experience. It's, yes, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. The, people, people really enjoy that experience of getting... Because I suppose, because we work in a farm and probably because you get to visit so many farms and all that, JP, we forget how few people actually have that Ever experience. go to a farm, Ever yeah. Ever go to a farm or get to see something grown and that, our animals and that. So we kind of take it for granted. People just love us getting back I, to nature. No, I think, I think so. And definitely even, even it's my... therapy without knowing it's Even therapy. my own kids. I mean, they, and we're, and I'm involved in food. Yeah. How few times they get to see a farm. And, yeah. and it is this, uh, like, it's almost like going to the zoo. Yeah, yeah. And yet this is a working environment. <laughs> that, yeah. Zoo. And so it, it is, I think, important to, to maintain that. And I think like we have, um, a responsibility to, to keep that going. But we also have an opportunity in Ireland because we're a bit smaller that we can get people to farms. Because I know in the UK and in the USA, 
it's too big now to even get people on farms. And I remember when I years ago, probably the early noughties, working in, in a restaurant in Edinburgh and there was a young lad working there and he'd never seen a cow in his whole life. And he was 16 or 17. And like, it wasn't even that it bothered him. He no. just had never seen a cow. Yeah, and he was yeah. asking me how big they were and what size yeah. and, and what they looked yeah, like. And, yeah, yeah. and it, but I suppose we, the more people live in cities, the more that's going to, well, going so to that change. Was beginning to ha- that was beginning to happen in the cities in Ireland, in, in Dublin yeah. in particular, in inner city schools, children, assumed milk was coming from a machine yeah yeah you know, that that was be, that was being lost and that's why they were going around you know i'd be aware we're being farms we're being animals you're know, the traveling live animals olivia Duff, yeah. was going around bringing them into school so they'd see animals absolutely which sounds so alien to those of us who are used to seeing animals i know but, but that's the danger of you say being brought up in a city but um i suppose one of the positive things you see positive from COVID, the pandemic is people are appreciating green areas more and are making it out into the countryside. I think so, and I was going to try and finish up by asking you how your pandemic was, but I, I, I think on a positive note, hopefully people move, possibly moving out of the cities and working more remotely, because we found that yeah, online things online have have just catapulted so much now. Like it's kind of moved on in in like in years in yes. terms of what people will accept online now, yes. and that the fact that you can work online and all these things. And I don't think pre-pandemic people would have so would have done that. And so no. hopefully there will be a few more people living in Galway and in Clare and yes. that, and there won't be that kind of like just Dublin growing and growing and growing and growing and because uh, we're sucking the, the resources out of, out of every- Very much so. I mean, that's the way it was going pre-pandemic. Everybody was moving to the city of Dublin and the surrounding counties. And like the West Coast of Ireland was just getting, was, was, being, was being decimated. People weren't there, but remote, I mean, what has happened as a result of the pandemic, I would say, would have to do with remote working and that would have taken at least 20 years before it would happen to the same. And I think level. even the politics wouldn't have bought it. Even when they no. tried to um, decentralise, it didn't even work. It didn't work. And it I think now that it has, it has almost, it kind of has forced a hand and people thinking of like living on the islands yeah. because they can have broadband <laughs> right. and, and all that. So hopefully it will give a greater appreciation. And like just a final question for you, like, well, like, where do you see, I mean, the future of St. Tolly? Not in the long term, but like over the next couple of years in terms of in terms of growing and you've got so many different cheeses and different products yeah. now. And I mean, what what do you want to focus on in, in the next few years? Well, what I'm focusing on um, and the pandemic has kind of really makes you focus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's not about uh, it's not about growing from a quantity point of view. It's developing the quality, continue to develop the quality of our cheese. It's educating people, you know, why Centola is different, why it has a geotype in mind, why the molds are there. I mean, I was surprised even, you know, over the last number of years, even within the food service sector, there was still a lot of education to be done, even with chefs, um, because a lot of them see kind of, would see even Ireland all Irish goat's cheese are the same. There's a yeah. difference of the goat's cheese. There's a there's a lot of new, you know, fresh cheeses which are can be which can be very rep, replicable. Yeah. But there's so many different other type of cheeses to be developed. Definitely developing the whole food tour, tourism aspect of the business. Um, there's huge possibilities there. Um, to do with sustainability, I'm really looking from a whole, you know, from a business point of view. Um, and sustainable point of view, the whole packaging, 
reducing waste, yeah, yeah. all that aspect of it. I think I've become more and more, I would always say I was kind of a climate aware anyway. Yeah. But just, it is really, the time is really against it at this stage. The same with regards to, like, we're one of the few cheesemakers who actually still have our own animals on the farm. There's the whole thing with the methane gas and that. Yes. We're doing trials with, with, with food. We're reducing our herd. Okay. Well, we in terms of what you feed them, or uh, in what we're feeding them, okay. you know, seaweed is yeah. good and reduce the seaweed. So there's trials been done with that in West Okay, Scotland. very Got good. Samples from them. It's about being more sustainable. It's it's it, it's decreasing the size of our herd, and getting the same volume of milk, and but being more sustainable. It's not growing. I I mean I would say some people are horrified when I say it, including some of the government agencies. Yeah. I'm not looking for export markets. Yeah. Because I. True sustainability is a country should be able to sustain itself. No, I, I completely agree. And I think too much, uh, sometimes too much, we, we we depend on on exports. And that's not even only food. I mean, people forget about the millions of silicon chips we oh, make. Yeah, and yeah. so it's not like, it, it's. It, I think it's important. It's not that exports are, are bad, but I think that we should be able to support ourselves first, first and then export as opposed to being outward focused all the time. Well, I think it's... I think we we had a taste of it when we had the very bad ice gym a few winters yes. and we couldn't get food into the country. Mm. We couldn't get supplies into the country. But this pandemic has shown has shown us. Um, you know, I really think in a way it's a bit of mother's nature. Globalization had a huge factor on this. No, no, I, I think and, and, and traveling and yes. goods traveling and people traveling, everything traveling, that everything was becoming less valued. Yeah. And we were coming to a stage that actually people were becoming less valued. Mm. And I think if we are to have a future for our grandchildren, mm. you know, I think our children will be okay, but our grandchildren, future generations, we really need every country and Ireland for one. And we're so lucky that we are an island nation. We just need to start out how we can work as an island yeah. nation, whether we are one politically or not, that we need to be sustainable for ourselves. And that by being sustainable as an island nation, we will be able to get our farmers and our producers will be able to get top dollar for what they produce as opposed to trying to compete in a world market because we will be able to grow the best food there is and protect it and be able to get food and quality of life is going to become so valuable no i absolutely so I, valuable i absolutely agree that yeah. people are going to pay top dollar for it or want to come to live in ireland because we're not being influenced by our our neighbours then, you know, when it comes to GMO and all this, we we, we, we see all around us, we can protect ourselves, you mm. know what I mean? And it's a place we should be going, but it's taken, it's take, I think a lot of the big organisations don't see between government agencies and even organisations representing growers and producers, some, some of them, the bigger ones, they don't see the value that, you know, it's, it, it's, we can't compete in a world market. We shouldn't compete. We should compete differently in a world market yeah. than trying to be a commodity, you know, commodity producers. And that's where I'm going with St. Ola, because that's where I see the value. I've always had the long-term vision, but even so, it's the long-term is becoming more immediate. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. And it's about, with me, it has always been quality over quantity. Brilliant. So Siobhan, you've got some wonderful uh, samples in front of us here, and I can see one of them is, I suppose, your iconic uh, Tola log, which is made with raw milk. And I know raw milk is very, very important for you. So you just want to tell us a little bit about its importance, and also, I suppose, that some people won't won't know the difficulty of, of using it, and then also selling uh, a cheese that's made with raw milk. Yeah, I mean, raw milk cheese is, is my passion. 
um, with St. Ola. And we have fewer and fewer cheesemakers making raw milk cheeses. And is that because of uh, restrictions or legislation? It's because like of legislation, yeah. legislation, regulation. I mean, when all the cheesemakers, Irish cheesemakers that I've mentioned, Megan, Derrick and, and Malines and Gobine, they were all producing raw milk cheese. They all started making raw milk cheese. It's the most natural form. Because um, then you have the bacteria inside the cheese. The bacteria yeah. inside the cheese. Um, but then I think our regulators have to learn a lot um, about raw milk and, and raw, 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 you know, products made from raw milk. And um, as regulators came in and were less educated on it, um, and then there was the whole instance of TB, mm. um, producers got, got scared, I'd say, and got worried. And then they were... Customers were getting worried, and they had to be practical about it from a, you know, from producing from a business point of view. So a lot of cheesemakers, newer cheesemakers, there were very few new raw milk cheesemakers. The majority produced pasteurized milk. Even now, yeah. Even now. Because I suppose the difficulty, I know that even raw milk producers, most of them have they, gone now. I yes. mean, we used to get supply of raw yeah, milk, yeah. and uh, it's very difficult to get very now. Very difficult. It, it's very limited, and you can only sell so many liters you can sell 30 litres of milk within a 20-mile radius. And then your date is quite short. Yeah, your date is quite short. But from a raw... I mean, you can make great raw milk cheeses with long dates, like your hard your yes. cheese farmers and those. So, so they're easier to make. But still, it's out there with regulations that, you know, oh, it's difficult. And, you know, we have more of a case to argue because it's our own farm from a traceability point of view. Yeah. So we, we have two clear um, markets. We have milk made from our own cheese, that is raw milk cheese, that we think is, we know, is very different yes. to our pasteurized milk cheeses. We do buy in from another farmer. And regulation at the moment now is if you buy in your milk, you have to pasteurize. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there is a difference. That's is, because it is traveled or that's the, yeah, their regulation. Just, from a, just with the regulation, you can't, uh, traceability is what they say, you know. Uh, so it is very hard to get around that, you know. So mm. we are fortunate that we have our own animals and we produce raw milk cheese. And as part of, you know, the Irish Slow Food Presidia, we have a raw milk cheese presidia. There's about seven members in it compared to 60 Irish farmhouse cheesemakers in general. Um, but it is something that we have fought very hard for. We continue to fight great support um, within the industry of our customers who understand and are passionate about it. But in the bigger sectors of the industry, like say in the multiples, even a lot of, not multiple retail, the people who um, the people who work for them who are their HACCP control, their environmental they, they officers. They, they don't want to get involved in it. Yeah. No, no. And it's, 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 it, it goes back to it goes back to years ago when there weren't the same standards of hygiene yes. or regulations and there were danger there were risks there. Yeah. But the standard of hygiene that is out there and the regulations that are there nowadays, there isn't the same risk, but things haven't moved on. People are still worried. I still have people, you know, even as they get more instant food, they're still concerned always. I always say it's raw milk, even when people come to the farm and they'd have the cup of tea, but as I said, this is raw milk you're drinking. And um, the majority of people, they see us drinking it and we're still <laughs> moving and talking, so they'll take it. But there are people who are apprehensive. It's it's education, like I, we've been educating people when it comes to goat's cheese, a fresh go fresh cheese to yeah. fresh goat's cheese to now mature goat's cheese. It's the whole raw milk there is a revival there, but it's still very hard when the authorities would prefer you not to. Be and I think it is something that is that is worth fighting for because even like I think of something that is so on trend at the moment is natural wine. Yes. And, and for me, there's such a parallel between natural wine making, like lower intervention, and yes. raw milk cheese making, yes. and yet 
one is almost kind of hip and cool and the other one is almost being hammered down by by regulation so i think it's it is really important to to highlight that and and i think it's for us with i know with with our restaurants i think it's 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 a really important part of our cheese board because again it's a part of the story and the narrative that you can talk to people about and whether it's the proximity or being produced on the farm like i think it's important for us anyway particularly in an ear and uh, and tartar when we get the i suppose the 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 moment to to focus on on the cheese and the and the cheese board and i think it it, it will always go back to 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 that for me it's like it's 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 the um, the irish cheese board is is very much talking about how the, the story co- yeah talking about the, but also it's a representation of of how, how ireland is like as well if you yes. have your different cheeses that are different styles and and, and made in different ways it, it for me it shows the diversity of the great diversity that we have of cheese in the country yes, yeah. that it's not a cheese board of easy yeah, singles yeah. and calvisha <laughs> and uh, and but it is it, it there's there's great there's great difference variety yeah, yeah. and it's it's a tradition and it's a craft and like we are in danger of losing traditional crafts and if we don't have uh, champions or ambassadors or people promoting and continue to talk about them because I mean even when it comes to um, sure Israel so the language was gone down to two or three people and now it's so much uh, alive you know yeah, absolutely. Now, that we need to keep even if there are only the handful of raw milk Irish cheesemakers at least we have the handful and we keep on talking and then we have people like yourself JP and others in the trade who are prepared to risk it (laughs) but it's not a risk but it's to get and then we just it's all about education and I think as you said education I think is the most important thing because whether it's it's just about influencing the next generation and whether that's myself or my kids or our grandkids or that and about continuing that tradition along because if that tradition dies it's very hard to revive it then because as we go more and more into a legislative world and things become more regulated it's very hard to bring back Mm. something that you've lost and whether it's these whether it's small abattoirs on farms or whether it's raw milk cheese I mean once you lose these traditions and uh, a country gets used to going ahead without them it's very very hard to uh, to get beyond them or else they go underground JP yes which is very difficult <laughs> but or else they go because that's what we thought I mean two years not the second last food yeah two years whenever we had the food net not the last time the previous one where we spoke about Ramek at that yes. stage we were in serious we thought that following January that was going to be the end of raw milk cheese being produced in Ireland but we kept I mean that helped very much because people who attended you know they started sharing it on social media the authorities they, they, they don't want to be seen to kill a tradition yes. that is centuries old so but we had thought we were going to go big things go underground if they're made illegal do you know what I mean oh. um, this would have been something that would be worth but then you as our customer wouldn't have been able to sell it or, or, or advertise it obviously or promote it because you know it's it, 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 it's a legal business do you know what I mean but it's something when something is worth fighting for we will fight for it you know and we'll stay doing so hopefully so as you said at the beginning I think we could talk all day certainly I, I can talk or we can talk as well as each other but I want to thank you Siobhan for, for coming up from all the way from Clare and uh, uh, and bringing some beautiful cheese as well and for those of you who have uh, who are listening to the podcasts uh, we are um, at the moment um, doing a series of uh, interviewing various different um, personas uh, regarding food in uh, in Ireland, we have the past podcasts that are up online that you can that you can listen to uh, as well. And hopefully, we will talk to you soon.